Let's come before our Father in prayer. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The hills and the mountains burst forth with your praise. The sun, the moon, and the stars dance at your command. We see the fall colors and the uh, fall harvest and the wonderful things that you have done. And we praise your majestic name. We remember that the inhabitants of this earth and all the nations are as grasshoppers in your sight. And yet you love us. We are your people, your sheep, the work of your hands. It is you that have made us, not we ourselves. Our personalities and our talents and our gifts and our hands, our feet, our tongues, were all fashioned by you in our mother's wombs. And there's not a word on our tongue that you do not know altogether. And yet we are so often distrustful of that goodness and power. We still live and move as if we have our being in ourself as if we come from chance rather than designed by your powerful hand. We see the beauty of the earth and we look at ourselves and we go, Ugh, teach us, Father, to rejoice in how you have made us. Even as we mourn our sin, yet teach us, Father, to use these gifts that you have given us. Take these hands and make them instruments of righteousness and take these feet and make them beautiful on the mountains, bringing tidings of peace and hope to the world. Take these lips and let our words be as nuggets of gold and rare jewels falling from our tongues. May our words breathe life and hope and peace. Deliver us, Father, from the rage and the despair of the evil one. Take away the evildoer from our sight and destroy the works of iniquity. Protect us from lawless and unjust men. We pray that you would bless our governor and our president and all those newly elected Bless our assemblymen and our national leaders. We pray, Father, that you would give them a wisdom of spirit, a wisdom of justice, and a spirit of wisdom and justice and sound thinking. May sobriety reign and foolishness be torn down. And we pray for peace in our country, in our bodies, in our souls, with one another. Peace with creation. And give us peace going forward. Deliver us from both tyranny and from anarchy. May order and justice flow as rivers of water. May our lives and our words magnify your name and bring peace in whatever circles you have placed us in. May your kingdom come. Grant that we submit ourselves always more and more to you and to your word until Jesus comes again. Father, we are dependent upon you for our life and breath. We acknowledge that. We praise you for your goodness to us. Create in us hearts that trust and rely on you. Give us our food today. And Father, bless those that are struggling with illness, those fighting cancer. Be merciful to those who are sick. I pray, Father, for Roger and that you would heal his body today. For Bob, we pray that you would heal him in body and soul. Bring the wandering ones home. And bless the preaching of your word wherever it takes place today. We pray that you would sit with us in our grief and sit with us in our laughter and in our songs. Bless my lips in the reading and preaching of your word today and guide my tongue and give us hearts ready to hear and to obey. And let's pray together and let the words of our mouths and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen.
Uh, my scripture reading this morning is uh, Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, which is also my text. The well-known story of the rich young ruler, Luke 18, 18 through 30. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw that he became sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. This is a passage about goodness, about beauty, about the kingdom, about righteousness, and about riches. First, I'd like to talk about goodness. We're wired to seek after goodness because we're wired to seek after God. It's built into our DNA. We know that God is good. As Jesus said, there's no one good but God. Goodness in the scripture and even in our English language doesn't just mean moral goodness. It means everything that is beautiful, wholesome, peaceful, wise, Productive, joyful, tasty. When the wine is balanced perfectly, we say, oh, that's good wine. When the steak is cooked perfectly, we say, that's good steak. When the apple is the perfect cross of sweet and tangy and the crisp is just right, we say, that's a good apple. We use beautiful the same way. We say, that's a beautiful woman, beautiful song, beautiful art, a beautiful meadow, a beautiful man. In the Bible, beautiful and good are the same word. But in all of these things, something is missing. Solomon describes it in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. And yet we look at the beauty of the earth. What does Solomon mean? It's just this. Our DNA is wired to seek after God. That desire shows itself in our attraction to things that are good and beautiful, things that are peaceful and cause us joy. We seek after pleasure and we reject that which causes hurt and pain. Idolatry is when we start seeking good in the creation rather than the creator. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. He says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, 
even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Think about what he says there for a moment. In creation, the invisible things of God are seen. The Bible tells us God is beautiful. He is good. How do you see those things? You see those things in the things that he has made. Everything invisible in his attributes reflected in the things that he has created. So we can see his wisdom, his beauty, his holiness, and his love. But creation is not God. There is only one who is good. That is God. Creation reflects the goodness of God. But that is not goodness in itself. For goodness apart from God does not exist. If we say that a man is a good man, we may mean a lot of things by that. We may mean that he meets a requirement for kindness, generosity. When we say an apple is good, we mean that it meets our requirements for what makes a good apple or what makes good wine or what makes a beautiful piece of music. There are standards outside of the object itself. And if that object compares to the standard, we call it good. That is not what we mean when we say God is good. There is no standard of goodness outside of God that God matches up to. Goodness is God. God is goodness. The theological term of this is God's attributes and his being are the same thing. They are identical. This is the simplicity of God. Everything on this earth that we call good, we ultimately call it good because it reflects the Creator's goodness. Without fellowship with God, therefore, there is no such thing as good. The heart of the fall, Eve saw that the fruit was good and she took it. Meaning, she separated the goodness of the fruit from the goodness of God, or tried to, in her head and brought ugliness, pain, death, and destruction into the world because there is no goodness apart from God. She saw, she took, Adam took with her, and mankind fell. Creation became subject to futility, to vanity. It's still upheld by the providence of God, and it still has the echoes of God's goodness in his original creation, but it's fallen. And now with creation Ugliness, futility, death, misery entered in. Riches corrupt. Thieves break in and steal. Moths eat the garments. Vandals vandalize. Murderers kill. The wine gives you a headache. The steak gives you heart disease. The apple wilts and gets a worm. And over everything there's the pall of change, decay, and death. And yet in the heart there's still the longing for God. For that which is pure and holy and clean and beautiful, that which is good, it consumes the heart of mankind. But we're fallen. And now we seek good in that which can never satisfy. Isaiah tells the people of his day, why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? 
Listen carefully to me, Isaiah says. Eat that which is good. It's free. How can I get that which is good? How can I fill the longing of my soul? The rich man here comes to Jesus. If only I had a little more. What's that little more that would be enough for me? The rich man comes to Jesus. Matthew calls him a young man. He was in the flush of youth and beauty, of his strength. He had money. He had the world before him. According to the law, like Paul, he would have called himself blameless. He was also a ruler. The Greek word is archon. That's a general term for any leader, official, an important man. Maybe a city councilman, maybe the mayor, maybe the ruler of the synagogue. He was an important man. In other words, listen to this, he had youth, strength, power, wealth, and he was blameless. And yet, he comes to Christ. What good thing must I do? What more do I need to do? If he was truly satisfied, why did he come to Jesus? Either he was looking for reassurance, or an accomplice, or instruction, or simply to satisfy his curiosity, but he felt in himself something that he lacked. Jesus, of course, knew what it was that he lacked. And so he started the conversation talking about what this man lacked. Why are you calling me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. We were created to dwell with God, bathing in God's perfect beauty and loveliness and goodness in his presence, naked and unashamed. But now we're living in a kingdom of death and brokenness and ugliness. We're trying to fill that void by either making better choices or buying more stuff or networking with the right people or getting the right appointments or finding the right drug or the relentless pursuit of the party, the sex, the wine, and the debauchery, all in the pursuit of what we define as good. And it leaves us empty because there is no good except for God. Those who do not believe that Jesus is true God use this verse as proof thinking that Jesus is saying, you can't call me good because I'm not God. That's not the point. Jesus is calling this man to think about what he thinks about goodness. Why are you using the term good? Think about that. Why are you using that term? Do you believe that goodness exists apart from God? Is there any such thing as beauty and goodness and peace? without restored fellowship from the Creator? Think about this carefully, Jesus is saying. If you're coming to me, if you come to Christ, so that he might show you a better way to live in this world, or a way to make more money, or to have a happier marriage, or a happier child, or a better education, or pleasure, or reputation, or acceptance, or to bring about a more just society, or whatever it is you think you're going to gain by coming to Christ... You won't get what you think you're going to get. Because without restored fellowship with God, there is no goodness. That which we see on this earth is only a shadow, a glimpse, a fading memory of Eden. And it will soon be washed away with fire. As Paul said, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. 
So Jesus is not denying his goodness or his deity. In fact, before this conversation is over, he will tell this young man, follow me. Which he would not say if he was not divine. In other words, he offers himself as what this man desires. But first he has to lead him there. So he tells him, you know the commandments. He rattles some of them off. The law was given as a diagnostic of our problem. There's something we all know, dreadfully, drastically, and painfully wrong with our world. The philosophers, the theologians, the artists, and the poets are all seeking to put their finger on exactly what the problem is. Our catechism sums it up in the favorite question of the kids because it's the shortest one. From where do you know your misery? Out of the law of God. What's this rich young man's problem? Let's look at the law of God. The law requires us to love God with our whole heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pretend that we do that. You ask most people on the street, do you love God? And they would say, yeah, we love God. But the Ten Commandments expose us for who we really are. We're prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. This man, for example, says, I've kept these from my youth. Jesus says, really? You have? If you love your neighbor as yourself, sell everything you have, give it to him. If you love God with all of your strength, follow me. In other words, this young man had no idea just how broken the world was and just how broken he was. He thought that he could fix the problem by doing just a little bit more, adding a bit more, buying a bit more. And that's the path to a relentless quest to quench a thirst that can't be quenched. As Jeremiah says, you're trying to fill a cistern that's broken. This is why we don't rest. Our society today is filled with anxiety and turmoil and anxiousness and worry and fear. The relentless pursuit of rest. Because we continually say in our heart, we need to do one more thing. And the churches say, you have to do one more thing. This young man comes to Jesus and says, what's one more thing that I can do? I'm still not satisfied. Give me something else I can do. And Jesus says, you don't need to do one more thing. You need to exchange everything you have for one thing. Follow me. The law was given to cut through our excuses so that we will come out of the bushes and stand before God exactly as we are, without pretense, without blustering, without excuses, without shifting the blame. This man was focused on outward performance, on conformity. If I conform to this standard, then I will find good. And Jesus says there's no one good but God. Conforming to a standard isn't going to do it. You have to follow Christ. Jesus wasn't just busting this guy's chops. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus looked at this man and loved him. So he offered him treasure in heaven. 
We don't know what happened to this man after the resurrection of Christ when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Some speculate that this could be the young Apostle Paul. There's no evidence of that, and yet he could be just like him. Paul would have said all of these things earlier and gone away very disillusioned in Christ before the Spirit was poured out on him. But Jesus loved him. He was offering this man rest. The reason this man couldn't rest is because he was trying to worship mammon and God at the same time. But mammon drives the heart relentlessly. You always have to have more and more and more. When is it going to be enough? Just a little bit more. Jesus offers everything and gives us rest. And this takes us to a discussion about kingdoms. I said this was about goodness, righteousness, kingdoms, and wealth. The kingdom of God, as we know, was lost in Eden. Satan usurped that kingdom. And sin and ugliness reigned. The line of Cain immediately made themselves at home. They built cities and mastered technology. Eventually, their spiritual children would build the Tower of Babel. But as I've said before, if Babel is your hope, somebody's got to make the bricks. And so behind the beautiful hanging gardens of Babylon, you see the gallows that the criminals were impaled on, the full dungeons, the soldiers preparing for war. Because to reach heaven, the tower has to be bigger and stronger and more and more relentless. To reach heaven, there's just a little more that's needed. One more criminal to be executed. One more guy outside to be crushed. And the tower is never done. Because it's in opposition to God and so it can never offer that which is good. Thus, all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And you can have all of them, but you won't find that which is good. <clears throat> In contrast, the Tower of Babel is the promise to Abraham, which would come by promise, not by the flesh. This is what Jesus came to do. Not to give us another law to fulfill or to some better teaching or a better society or better motivation to good living. He came to conquer the kingdom of the devil by his sufferings, death, and resurrection to bring us to God so that we would have that which our heart longs for. Our king has ascended into heaven and will come again in power, and a people are being gathered out of the kingdoms of this world, and a place is being prepared where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. The point is not that Jesus is giving this man another work to do. He's drawing him to open his eyes. No matter how much you buy, no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how much you add to your stature and reputation, the day will come when you will die. Your body will go into the ground and you will be eaten by worms and you will never find what you were looking for unless you follow me. He's saying the same thing he said in Matthew 6, don't lay up yourselves treasures in, on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This passage goes deeper than how are we righteous before God. It is true 
that it does hint at how we are righteous before God. We need Christ's righteousness imputed to us. But whenever we ask the question, what do we need to do? We're missing the point. We're in a fallen world governed by rust and moths and decay and change and death. And no matter what we do, that's still going to be the case. And what we need to do is to understand that and open our eyes, hold very loosely to those things that we think are so important, and follow Jesus. Jesus is telling this rich young man, the end of all ages has come. The kingdom of God is here. Death and hell are about to be destroyed forever. A new era is going to dawn. The Holy Spirit will be poured out and a new age will begin. This old order will fade and die. So follow me. Nothing else matters. What good is your life if you fall short of the glory of God? Follow me, Jesus says, and you'll have unimaginable treasures in heaven. And so on this earth, if he calls us to give up our lives, if he calls us to lose our jobs, if he calls us to stand before judges, to suffer exile and prison, if he calls us to lose friends, lose family, lose livelihoods, none of that is worthy to be compared to the treasure that he has in store for us. We have been trained and it's been deeply ingrained in us to think that Christianity is about changing culture, about proper order in the home, about political parties, about the causes of the elite and the shrill, that it's about being right and making ourselves worthy of God's begrudging favor by getting all the answers right on the theological quiz. And so we find ourselves never resting, never able to see beauty, never able to stop being angry and afraid. All because we serve the wrong kingdom. We hold so tightly to our opinions that we refuse to open our eyes and see beauty. We refuse to be loved because we're so enamored with being right. This is what Jesus is leading this young man to see. Follow me. Use everything you have to reflect God's beauty to an ugly world. But never think that this world is your home or that you will somehow find goodness here apart from restored fellowship with God. For there is only one who is good. And there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What this means is you can convince the world to vote for your party. You can convince the world that you are right. You can convince the world to be good. You can fix your spouse and your kids and your work and your community. You can gather to yourselves all the money and the power and the pleasures that you can possibly imagine. These are all unreal conditions. The only one that did all that was Solomon. And at the end of it, what did he say? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Fear God, keep his commandments, for such is the whole duty of man. Because you won't find the goodness that you are searching for until you quit searching for it in the things of the world and learn to follow Jesus. You can't bring forth good fruit unless you're a good tree. And a tree can only be good if it's grafted into a good branch. And there's only one who is good, and that is God. And he sent his only begotten son to become flesh so that we might live, for he alone is good. 
But you can only be grafted into Christ if you're taken away from the old tree. That belongs to Adam. And you can't serve two masters. This young ruler looked at what Jesus was saying and he was smart enough to understand what Jesus was asking of him. If he gave up his wealth, he would lose his identity. He would lose everything that he was. He would lose his place in the community, his standing, his reputation, because he knew that nobody listens to a poor man. Nobody asks the poor man to sit on the boards of the synagogues and the guilds. Nobody asks the poor man what he thinks about the latest discourse from Rabbi Gamaliel. The poor man is alone, despised, outcast, homeless, depending on God for his very next meal. Just like Jesus. The rich man knows what's being asked of him. And it's too much. He goes away very sorrowfully because we can't do it unless we're born again by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus says how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier when you're poor because you have nothing. When you're rich, you have everything to lose. And our natural bent is to look for status and goodness and salvation in our own resources. And the rich man is one who has a lot of resources, terrified of giving any of them up. But that which is impossible for men is possible for God. And as I said, this man could have been just like the Apostle Paul was at his age. And Paul says, I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What more do I need? To count it all as dung, that I might win Christ and know the power of his resurrection. As I said before, Jesus is on his way to the cross when he has this discussion with the rich man. Follow me. Resurrection comes through suffering. The disciples said, we've, we've left everything. And Jesus didn't mock them. He made them a promise. There's no one who's left everything who won't receive many times more in this present life and in the age to come eternal life. Because when we're united to God... We have the goodness that we're looking for. And soon we will see him face to face. When we follow after Jesus through the dark valleys, we eat with the sinners that Jesus ate with. We walk with the wounded that Jesus walked with. We bore witness to the good news that he has conquered sin and death and misery. And there will be loss because Jesus said the world hated him. He'll hate us. But he has overcome the world. And so we follow. Wherever he leads, we go to the cross, we suffer, we rise, we ascend. We reign with him forever and ever, sitting with him on his throne. As he tells us in Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And behold, as God said at creation, it is very good.
Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for restoring to us that which we have thrown away. For you have restored to us goodness in giving us yourself in Jesus Christ. Teach us to follow him, to trust in him, to rest in him. In Jesus' name, amen.